This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. With that being said, please open your Bibles to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. If you need a Bible, if you don't have one with you, we'd love to be able to get one to you. So just shoot your hand up in the air. Uh, we'll give you one. We've got a couple on, uh, one over here as well. So over here, there we go. So let's get them. Thank you so much um, for doing that, guys. Appreciate that. We are in the book of Judges, which is uh, just a couple books into the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. If I'm doing my math right, I think it's around the seventh book in. Uh, I just want to warn you up front that this book that we're about to study, we'll be in this for the next several months. Uh, honestly, this in many ways is a disturbing book. It is a book that is full of betrayal, a book that's full of scandal. At one point, someone gets their head smashed in with a tent peg, and that is not even close to the worst thing that happens in this book. So this is not a book that's going to be full of some sweet sayings that we want to maybe crochet and put up in our homes or on the side of a coffee mug. And yet in the midst of all the chaos that is happening in these pages, I believe God has something very profound that he wants to say to us. And part of our pastoral team's desire for going through this book is to help us as a church know how we can read and apply the parts of the Bible that can be difficult to understand sometimes. In order to understand the book of Judges, we have to know where it fits in the biblical storyline. And so we see in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, that God makes a covenant, which is an unbreakable promise with a man named Abraham, that he'll make Abraham into a mighty nation through which all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that nation becomes the people of Israel. And then the books Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers tell the story of Israel's slavery in Egypt and God's miraculous delivery of them and his promise to bring them into the land that he had for them, a land that is known as the promised land. We need to understand when we read the Bible that when God speaks about the promised land, he's speaking about more than just a geographic location. This land represented living in the fullness of the spiritual blessing that the Lord had for his people. In the fullness of experiencing his presence with them as their God. However, as the people come into this land, well, there are already some other people living there. This is where things can begin to get a bit dicey for us because the book of Joshua, which comes right before the book of Judges, in that book, God tells the Israelites to kill all the people that were in the land. We read that and we're like, what is going on with that? Why is God seeming to order some kind of ethnic cleansing or mass genocide? Well, what we have to understand is that the people living in this land were people who practiced, as part of their worship of false gods, people who practiced such horrific things as child sacrifices, as murder, torture, and rape. That, that was part of how they worshipped their gods of violence and evil. And so these were not innocent people that Israel is stealing land from. No, these are cruel and wicked people that God is bringing judgment down on. And he's doing it through the people of Israel. 
Now, we might say at this point, well, that mentality sounds very dangerous. People taking on themselves the mantle of God's being instruments of his justice, that sounds like a dangerous thing, and it certainly does. I mean, people who adopt that mentality today commit horrific acts of injustice. The difference is we need to understand that Israel had a clear mandate from God to do this on his behalf, to be his instruments of justice. And we need to understand that God simply does not commission the people to do that anymore. With the coming of Jesus, God has begun a new way of working in the world. Jesus came, as he says, not to bring death, but to bring life. He came on a saving mission, and those who follow him are to participate in that saving mission. Jesus did not come to take life. He came to give his life for our sin on the cross. He came to bring mercy, and as his followers, we are to Give mercy to others as we have been given mercy by him. James chapter 2 verse 13. Jesus actually explicitly forbids his followers to take God's justice into their own hands. Romans chapter 12 verse 19. And he forbids his followers to take up swords and fight for him. For he says his kingdom is not of this world. John chapter 18 verse 36. And so we need to be clear that Christians are to be people of peace. Because we follow Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. And so anyone who claims today that they're in a mandate from God to bring judgment on the world is either lying or pathologically deceived. So the command to bring God's judgment was really unique to ancient Israel, but the lessons to be learned are actually timeless. Because what happens is, as we get to the book of Judges, instead of the Israelites obeying God, the people rebel, and they don't destroy these nations, but allow them to remain. And as a result, these nations rise up and conquer the Israelite people and oppress them. And so what happens is, God raises up these judges to rescue his people. These these judges are not like judges that we think of it, you know, in a black gown with a gavel. Uh, No, these are not judges like that. The word here for judges more, more accurately means a rescuer or a savior. But as the book goes on, we see that even these saviors become more and more corrupt. Judges does not start well, and it ends even worse. It ends with the people of God becoming just as corrupt as the nation's that God had sent them to destroy, and their judges becoming just as corrupt as the evil leaders of those nations. And because of that, of the 300,000 square miles that God promised to his people, at the height, all they possess is 30,000 square miles, or only one-tenth of what God actually had for them. They never experience the fullness of the Lord, because they get stuck in a cycle of spiritual apathy and sinful rebellion. And I think that same cycle of faithlessness and spiritual apathy can so often be present in us. We can so easily get caught in cycles of our own sin. We can so easily get caught in cycles of wrong thinking about God that can lead to anxiety and fear. We can go so easily caught in cycles of just doing the Christian thing, but having hearts that are cold towards the Lord and distant to his ways. 
And as a result of our cycles, we can miss out on the fullness of all that God has for us in him. And so our pastoral team's burden for going through this series, that God would show us through this book how there is one who can break the cycle. How there is one who has come, who is a greater judge, a greater rescuer, a greater savior, and he can lead us into more of God than we could ever dare hope to imagine. And so we are calling this series Breaking the Cycle, Rebellious People Pursued by the Faithful God. And I'm just full, so full of faith for what I believe God wants to do in our midst in these next few months. I believe there's a greater freedom and fullness that God wants to bring as we see how he can break cycles through the power of Jesus Christ. So with that said, let's turn our attention to Judges chapter 1. We're going to be this morning in Judges 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. But I'm going to start by just reading the first seven verses. And then we're going to have a time of asking God to speak to us in prayer. Let's turn our attention to God's word. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the ter territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I've done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Just have a time of prayer. I encourage you just to bow your heads and pray for yourself that God would speak to you through the preaching of his word. Just take a moment to have a time between us and God. Now would you please pray also for me, that I would speak clearly and helpfully in a way that is beneficial to you and honoring to the Lord. God, we pray to you because we need you. Would you please come speak to us and make this ancient text, which can, on the face of it, seem so disconnected from our lives. Lord, I pray you would help us to see you in these pages, that we might not be the same as when we first came in here. Praise for the name of Christ. Amen. If you have ever felt spiritually up and then spiritually down, I was doing really well, but now I'm not in a good place. I was doing great, now I'm doing bad. If you've ever experienced spiritual inconsistency, which we all can and we all do, I think Judges chapter 1 has something very important to say to us. I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, the causes and cure 
for spiritual inconsistency. We're going to spend most of our time going through four causes of spiritual inconsistency, and then we'll see the cure for that. I want to let you know that we're going to spend most of our time going through the causes because if we just get you know, kind of caught up in that, we're like, oh, shoot, this is really down. Or like, all you're saying is all these bad things in me. But if you've ever had an undiagnosed illness before, you know that one of the most discouraging things is not knowing the cause of what's going on. Because what you don't know the cause of, you can't find a cure for. And so I believe this morning God wants to take us through this text and show us the causes of our spiritual inconsistencies so that we might be led to the cure that he has for us. So cause number one, spiritual inconsistency comes when we try to do things our way instead of God's way. Israel was made up of these 12 tribes, and in verse 2, we see the first tribe to be given an assignment to go and drive out their enemies is the tribe of Judah. God promises that he will deliver the Canaanites who currently possess that land. He promises he will deliver them into their hand. This is a promise of victory. And so Judah listened to the Lord and go and did what he said. But first they took a detour. They did not just go do what they did not just immediately go and do what God said. Instead of immediately obeying God, they decide to take a detour and add to God's plan. They go and make an alliance, the tribe of Simeon, and say, let's go fight together. Now, it's not wrong to ask others for help. In fact, that's actually a sign of spiritual maturity. God has wired us to be people who are at our best when we are connected in community and walking out our purposes in Him arm in arm with other people who can strengthen us in him. A spiritually mature person is someone who knows that a we is a whole lot better than a me. So it's not wrong for Judah to want help, but God did not tell them to go get help from the tribe of Simeon. God had already given these people, this tribe, everything they needed within their own tribe to go and win this battle. But as the people of Judah saw what was in front of them and what God had asked of them, they feel like they did not have enough, and so they needed to go just add a little more help. I think commentator Eric Redmond captures it very well as he describes what's going on here. He says, what seems to be an innocent invitation is laden with rebellion against the Lord and maybe reveals fear or at least a lack of faith on the part of Judah. Whenever we go beyond the word of God to achieve what we aspire to accomplish. We are compromising the voice of God and thus compromising our faith. Whenever we go beyond the word of God, how often we can go beyond the word of God. How often we aspire to accomplish things that maybe are even good things, that are maybe even God's things, but we try to do God's things in our own way. We go beyond the Word of God and try to do things in our own strength, according to our own plans. So God tells us, for example, in His Word, that we are to confess our sins to one another so that we can encourage each other to pursue godliness. But we go beyond God's word and we don't open up. Instead, we think to ourselves, well, I can fix it without doing what God says. I'm not going to be honest to anyone about anything. God has told us that we need to pray for his help. 
But we go beyond what God says. We just focus on our own efforts, thinking that we can do more in our power than we can do through prayer. God has told us that we need to feed daily on his word, to be in his word, that his word should be our daily bread. But, but instead, we just focus on other things, thinking that, well, if I read this other book, or if I take this other class, or if I do this other thing, then I'll experience the breakthrough that I want. Whenever we go beyond the word of God to achieve what we aspire to accomplish, we are compromising the voice of God and thus compromising our faith. We cannot do God's things in our way. We need to do God's things in God's way. But what started as a little compromise by Judah ends up leading to an even bigger departure because they go on to attack the Canaanite and Perizzites. The king flees and Judah catches him and cuts off his thumbs and his toes. Now notice, they were supposed to kill him. But instead they chose to humiliate him. And the king is like, well, I'm getting this because this is what I did to others. And so notice that. They did to the king what the king had done to others. And so what we're meant to see at this point is that the Israelites are now fighting the Canaanites in the Canaanites' own way. The evil that God had wanted them to eradicate, they are now beginning to perpetuate. They started by doing things in their own way, and now they are doing things in their enemy's way. You see, when we start to do things our own way, we are training ourselves to eventually end up doing things in the world's way because we're going to lose sight of God altogether. And when we lose sight of God, well, we can end up in all kinds of bad places. Spiritual inconsistency comes when we try to do things our way instead of God's way. Cause number two, spiritual inconsistency comes when we focus on what is against us instead of the God who is for us. As we continue to read in this chapter, despite Judah's sin, God actually gives them victory after victory. Verses 8 through 18 is just Judah taking one territory after another. But all of a sudden, this victory march grinds to a halt in verse 19. Read verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. This is the first defeat that God's people experience in the book of Judges. It certainly will not be their last. But what happened is that they came up against an enemy unlike any other enemy they'd faced before. They came up against an enemy who had discovered how to make iron. And the people of Israel did not know how to make iron. And so their wooden shields would have been easily crushed by these enemies' iron swords. Their arrows would not have been able to pierce these enemies' iron shields. And these people had chariots that were covered in iron. This is an equivalent to a tank in ancient times. And so the tribe of Judah is looking at their weapons, which all of a sudden seem very pathetic and ineffective against these enemy technologies. And they're like, we just can't do it. We can't do it. What they had forgotten is that they had been in this exact situation about 40 years before. When Israel left Egypt, after a period of time, Pharaoh had a change of heart, and he decided to pursue them and bring them back into slavery. And we're told in Exodus 14 that he pursued them in iron 
chariots. And the Israelites experience this moment of desperation where they have the impassable Red Sea in front of them and these iron chariots bearing down on them. And yet what does God do? God miraculously delivers them. He parts the Red Sea for them so his people can pass through to safety. And then when the Egyptians try to pursue them, God brings the waters crashing down on them. And the whole army is destroyed. Because taking care of some chariots of iron is nothing for the God who controls the cosmos. And so God had already saved his people once from chariots of iron. And yet the tribe of Judah didn't believe that God could do it again. They were viewing their situation through the size of their challenge instead of trusting in the strength of their God. And so they fall back and disobey. Not because they can't. It's really because they won't. They hid their I can't in and I won't. Their saying I can't was really I won't trust God that he'll take care of me. And so I, because I won't trust God, I won't obey God and what he's telling me to do. They hid their I can't, in and I won't. Have you ever felt like I can't? I just can't. I can't be honest and tell the truth at my workplace because then I'll lose my job. I can't put God first at my finances because then I'll be unable to pay my bills. I can't give up this relationship that I know displeases the Lord because then I'll be lonely. I can't forgive that person. I can't not work on Sundays. I can't stop this sexual sin. I can't serve in that ministry. This can't be wrong because to me it feels so right. We say we can't, but the reality is it's not that we can't, it's that we won't. We won't trust God to take care of us, and so we won't be obedient to do what God has told us. We see what is against us, and we think that it is more than the God who is for us, And so we navigate our decisions on the basis of like, well, does this feel reasonable to me or not? And so when it does feel easy, when it does feel convenient, when it already fits comfortably into what we already want for ourselves, sure we follow God. But when it feels hard, when what God says grinds against what we want, it just feels like too much. And so we say we can't, but the reality is we won't. We won't follow him. Spiritual inconsistency comes when we focus on what is against us instead of the God who is for us. Cause number three. Spiritual inconsistency comes from accommodating our sin instead of killing our sin. After Judah gives in to their unbelief and does not drive out the people in the plain, this begins a downward spiral for the people of Israel. We read about the tribe of Joseph in verses 22 through 26. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spy saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us a way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. They let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That's its name to this day. And so what we see here is that the tribe of Israel goes to take the land of Bethel. And it says that God is with them. But in their minds, God's not enough for them. They need an inside man. And so they recruit this guy to help them infiltrate the city. And he does. 
and they're successful in overthrowing the city. But in exchange for this guy's help, they promise that they won't kill him. But that's what God had told them they were supposed to do with the inhabitants of the land. But the tribe of Judah makes an accommodation for this man. And so this man leaves and he goes and he establishes a new city. And did you notice the name of the new city that he established? The name that he goes of the new city he establishes is the name of the city that Israel had just destroyed. God had sent them to destroy the evil place called Luz, but because they didn't do it God's way, they did it their own way, because they sought to accommodate the sinful man instead of killing him as God had told them to do, the sin just shifted. It didn't actually go away. And this begins a whole pattern throughout the rest of this chapter where the people of God just failed to do what God had said, told them to do. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Eshian and its villages. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezir. Verse 30. And Zebulun did not drive out the inheritance of Kitron. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inheritance of Akko. Verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inheritance of Beth Shazam. Notice, there, there, no more is it even saying they could not drive out. Not just saying, now it's just saying they didn't do it. Right? There's no more pretending anymore that they can't. Now, now they're just saying we won't. We're not going to go all the way. And the reasons, why, why are they not driving out these people fully? Why, why are they not totally destroying them like God had told them to? Well, we're actually given the reasons in verses 28, verse 30, and verse 33. It's repeated three times. Verse 28 says, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 30, so the Canaanites lived among them, became subject to forced labor. Verse 33, and Bethanan became subject to forced labor for them. Here we see why they did not want to kill these conquered people. It was not an act of compassion. It was an act of economics. It was better economically for the Israelites to keep them around as slaves. But God did not want them to benefit from the evil of these people. He wanted them to drive out the evil completely. But they wanted to benefit from the evil while thinking they still would not be participating in that evil. They thought that keeping these sinful people around would be a benefit to them and that they could control them. They would never be, they were conquered by them. They weren't a threat to them. It would be okay. So we're going to just benefit from them. We're going to keep them close instead of doing what God had said, which was to drive them far, far away. They disobeyed God because they thought it was going to be better. Friends, we never sin because we have to. We always sin because we want to. We never sin because we have to. We always sin because we think that somehow it's going to be to our advantage. Somehow it's going to be better to do what we want than what God says. Sin always presents a bait. This will be good. Sin always presents a bait. It just also always hides the hook. You see, these Israelites did not drive out these people because it seemed better to let them stay and they thought they were strong enough to control them. I mean, these people did not look like any kind of threat at this moment. So, so it seemed better to just let them stay around. But all these people that in chapter 1 are under their control, by the time we get to chapter 2, the tables are turned, and these people get strong and rise up, and they conquer Israel and oppress them. Listen, whenever we think we can control the sin that God has said we are to kill, we are setting ourselves up for future slavery. Whenever we think that we can control the sin that God has said we are to kill, we are setting ourselves up for future slavery slavery. And so we can think, well, every now and then I just need to give vent to my anger, but I can control it. I don't have an anger problem. 
I might take too many pills, but I can control it. I don't have a drug problem. I can drink every day because I need to get buzzed. I need to wind down, but I can control it. I don't have a drinking problem. I watch pornography, but I can control it. I don't have a lust problem. I just really like to spend money, but I can control it. I don't have a greed problem. I lie when it is to my advantage, but I can control it. I don't have an integrity problem. My life might not look that much different from someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, but that's okay. I can control it. I don't have a worldliness problem. I don't start my day in God's word. I rarely pray. I'm not honest with others about my struggles with sin. I go to church when it's, you know, kind of convenient, but it's okay. I have all that under control. I don't have a self-sufficiency problem. See, like the Israelites, we can keep sin close and excuse it because we feel like we have it under control. But whenever we think we can control the sin that God has said we are to kill, we set ourselves up for future slavery. Because sin never stays contained. It always wants to take over more and more of our life. Now, it never happens quickly. These enemies of Israel do not quickly become powerful and overthrow them. If they had started to quickly become powerful, it's easier to, to, to kill things when you start to becoming a threat. But, but how, how, how evil often works is that it doesn't show up saying this is what's really bad. No, it glow, grows slowly over time. That's what sin does. It builds strength quietly as we continue to feed it instead of kill it. And then we find ourselves in places of spiritual trouble and we wonder, what happened? How did I get here? How we got there is because we were accommodating our sin instead of killing our sin. And spiritual inconsistency comes when we keep things close to us that God says we are to drive away from us. Cause number four. Spiritual inconsistency comes from wallowing in worldly grief instead of repenting in godly sorrow. Look at the beginning of chapter 2. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bacham. They sacrificed there to the Lord. So here we see this figure come on the scene that we're actually going to see multiple times in the book of Judges, this figure known as the angel of the Lord. Who is this angel? Well, some people think that it's an actual angel. Others would say it's an appearance of God, what's known as a theophany, because this being speaks in the first person as if they are God. Others think it is a Christophany, which is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ and it's an interesting discussion to be had about all those different opinions, but honestly, I don't think it makes that big a difference because the point is that these are being taken as God's words. And in these words, God's expressing his anger towards the people's sin. Now, why, why would God, a loving God, why would a loving God ever be angry at people? That, that does not seem compatible with love. Isn't, isn't anger the opposite of love? Actually, no, the opposite of love is apathy. We only get angry about things we actually care about. 
We only get angry about what we actually care about. I have, I have zero feelings when the Flyers lose. Because I could care a whole hill of beans about the Flyers. No offense if any of you are watching on the live stream. I don't think you are. I just don't really care about hockey. I'm not into hockey. Um, you know, poor pastor kids growing up, so we could like barely food buy food, you know, buy food, let alone like pay money to do hockey and stuff. So, so, so we just never was into it. It's not my thing, um, which I hear is a good thing because apparently the fire's really bad. But like, I'm spared. I don't care. Like, it really does not. It's not keeping me up at night. But the Eagles are playing later today, and I care a little bit more about that. And should they lose? It will not be a happy day in the Betcher household. I will not take it out on my family to be sure, but I might need some alone time. We only get angry about what we actually care about. Because God's anger towards the sins of his people shows that he actually cares deeply about his people. And so he calls them out for their disobedience and says that they're going to need to experience the consequences for their sinful choices. And they respond in sadness, which is a good thing. They respond in sadness by saying, oh, Lord, we have sinned. They respond in sadness, and then they go and do everything God told them to do in repentance. No, that's actually not what they do at all, is it? They, 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 they say they're sad. They make some sacrifices to put on the clothes as if they're worshiping. But notice what they don't do. They don't drive out the people they're supposed to drive out. They still keep the conquered people around as their slaves. They feel sad, but not sad enough to make a change. They are wallowing, it says. Oh, oh, they've wept. They lift their voices and weep. They're wallowing in regret, but they're not moving towards repentance. Friends, godly grief always produces movement to change. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about the way that we can tell whether we're actually sorry for our sin is not by the emotion that we're feeling. It's by the emotion that we put into our lives. True, godly sorrow, which we should feel when we sin against God. We should feel sorrow because if we love him, we should be sad that we sin against him. And so true godly sorrow produced from deep love for God, true godly sorrow should call us to turn from the things that are breaking God's heart and turn to the Lord's righteous ways. Just feeling sad about it is not enough. Everyone feels sad when they get caught. The question is, do we actually care about what we've done against the Lord? Are we, are we just going to stay in regret? Or are we going to move towards repentance? Repentance is turning from the wrongs we've done and turning towards the righteous thing that God wants us to do. But friends, it is so much easier just to wallow in regret than it is to actually pursue repentance. But spiritual inconsistency happens when we just stay with feeling bad about what we've done but don't make any moves to change what we've done. And then over time, what happens is our feelings of sorrow will fade. And since we haven't made any changes, since we haven't actually repented, we'll just go right back to our sin. And so these are the causes of spiritual inconsistencies. And there's more, but this is what Judges chapter 1 and 2 through 5 has shown us. It's trying to do things our way instead of God's way. It's focusing on what's against us instead of the God who's for us. It is accommodating our sin instead of killing our sin. And it's wallowing in worldly grief instead of, instead of pursuing 
godly sorrow and repentance. And so this is our diagnosis. But God never diagnoses just to leave us in despair. No, he only ever shows us the cause so that he can lead us to the cure. And I think we're given the cure as we look again at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham. Why is Gilgal mentioned? I hope we ask questions of the Bible when we read it. Why is Gilgal mentioned? It's not like this angel actually lived there. It's not like, oh yeah, they're, they're renting an Airbnb in Gilgal, and you know, then they heard this happen, and so God changed plans, you know. Why is Gilgal mentioned? Well, here's what you do. When you see something like that, if you have a Bible that has a concordance in it, go to the back and see if there's another mention of Gilgal. And if you, what you would see if you did that is that Gilgal is mentioned in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. Gilgal is the place that Israel arrived when it crossed over the Jordan River. And it's the place where God reaffirms his covenant with them. That he'll be their ever-present, always loving, faithful God. And so the writer of Joshua tells us in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, The Lord then said to Joshua, Today I rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore that place is still called Gilgal till today. Gilgal means to roll away. It's the place where God had rolled away the shame of his people. And so as the angel of the Lord comes from Gilgal, this is a reminder to the people that God is who he says he is in verse 1 of chapter 2. He is the one who brought them out of Egypt. He is the one who made a covenant with them. He is the one who said he would be and will always be the God who takes care of them. And so he's reaffirming his heart of love, his heart of mercy, his heart of grace. And yet he's also introducing attention. He's also introducing attention. God had entered into a covenant with his people to always care for them, but he also called them into a covenant to be faithful to him. He says in verse 1, I will never break my covenant with you. And he says in verse 2, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down the altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. So the tension here is God has made a covenant to be faithful to his people as long as they are faithful to him. But they weren't faithful to him. And this is why God says, why have you done this? God saying to his people that they had put him in an impossible situation. God had sworn to bless them as his beloved. And he had sworn to not bless them if they became disobedient. And that is what happened. And so what is God now to do? On the one hand, God is holy and just. And he cannot tolerate or live with or bless evil. But on the other hand, God is loving and faithful. And cannot tolerate the loss of people he has committed himself to. And so there's a tension we're meant to feel in this verse. Will God finally give up on his people? But then what of his faithfulness? Or will he finally give in to his people? But then what of his holiness? This is the tension of the book of Judges. Is God going to keep his covenant? Or will God break his covenant? But he can't break his covenant. But the people have broken his covenant. And what's going to happen? And it's because of tensions like this that Jesus said all of Scripture is ultimately calling forth for him. It is tensions like this that are meant to show us that this text is pointing to something beyond itself. Because it's only at the cross of Jesus Christ where we see this tension resolved. 
It's at the cross of Jesus Christ where God's faithfulness is resolved with his holiness, where his covenant keeping is resolved with our covenant breaking because on the cross our sins were given. They were, the biblical word, imputed to Jesus so that his righteousness could be given, could be imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 2, excuse me, 5.21 says, On the cross God made him to be sin. Our sins were imputed on him. They were given to him. God made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness is given. It is imputed to us. What we see happening, friends, in the cross of Jesus is God poured out his wrath on his people in the person of his son as Jesus stood in our place. And so it's the cross where God's justice is satisfied because their sin was punished. And it's at the cross where God's loving faithfulness is expressed because it is there that our salvation is accomplished. And so friends, it is only by looking to Christ and by trusting what he has done for us that we can live forgiven and obedient lives despite also being sinful and disobedient people. It's at the cross where we can be free to know that we've been pardoned for our sin and where we can be empowered to pursue killing our sin because it's only when we know that we are loved in Christ that we are free to live for Christ. It's only when we know that we've been made righteous by Christ that we can pursue obeying the righteousness of Christ. And so while the spiritual natures of our inconsistencies that they can be so varied friends the causes can be varied but the cure is only ever one it is Christ change does not come through our greater willpower but through more of the spirit's power strengthen us to know Christ and to know him more fully one of the themes that we're going to unpack a lot next week, but it's present in the whole book of Judges, is that the people of God, they knew about God, but they did not know God. And that's why they were not changed. Friends, it is so easy to come to church, to listen to sermons on YouTube, to sing praise music in your car. It's so easy to do Christian things and to think you know God, but all you do is know about Him. You don't actually know Him. What God wants to do in our lives is to strengthen us by, our, by His Spirit to show us that we have a need and dependence for Him. We can't just do the Christian thing. No, we need to cry out, God, I need you today. I need your help today. I'm going to just be spiritually inconsistent without you today. And so, Spirit, I need you to show me Christ more fully, to, to show me the depths of His love. What is the height, the width, the length of His love? How are we going to know that more fully by the power of your Spirit so that in knowing Christ more fully, I might follow you more steadfastly. We do not change through greater willpower. We change through knowing the Spirit's power strengthen us to see and behold the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Christ's love and our sin is like oil and water. They cannot mix. And the more oil of God's love we put in our hearts, the more the water of sin will be driven away from us. 
And so if you see in your life, man, there's areas of spiritual inconsistency. If there have been some causes, maybe, that have been diagnosed, you've been wondering, why am I so often up and down? Why am I so often up and down? And you're like, oh, well, there's my heart put on display in God's word. You should not leave here discouraged and condemned. No, you should leave here knowing that the great physician loves you enough to diagnose you so that he can lead you into the cure, which is not you trying harder to be better. It's from you knowing the one who is great. It's from you knowing Jesus Christ more and more and more. There's this great ending of the book. I'm going to close with this. The Last Battle, which is the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And Aslan just invites the children more and more. He keeps saying, just come further up and further in. Come further up and further in. This is what God's love is, friends. It's never something that we can fully exhaust. It's never something that we'll fully get to the end of. It's something that God continues to invite us into further up and further in. Further up and further in. And this is what we're being invited to today, friends. We're being invited to know the God who meets us at the place of grace and calls us further up and further in to know Christ more fully so that we may then might follow him more steadfastly. So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer and ask God to do just that.